0: It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we men undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of Old Maui. Rolling down to Old Maui, me boys, rolling down to Old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down. Uh, Hi, welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. I'm Tilly. And I'm Ben. Uh, This is a podcast where we go through Moby Dick, uh, a few chapters every episode. This episode, we are going to be talking about um, chapters 9 through 12. Uh, When we last left off, um, Ishmael had gotten into a uh, nautically themed chapel um, and had had sat down to hear the sermon on Sunday morning, Uh, and chapter 9 is titled The Sermon, Um, and the entire chapter consists of the sermon. Um, uh, Do you want to say anything generally about this chapter before I go into summarizing it? It's kind of uh, a, it's, uh, the summary for this chapter is sort of different from other ones because it's not um, a piece of fiction where things are happening, it's a sermon. Uh, So I, I have to sort of summarize the argument um, so I thought it might make sense to talk about it more generally before we start. hmm
1: Yeah, um, the thing that I find really interesting in this chapter is that it's, uh, I mean, it's that Mapple, Father Mapple, is just entirely concerned with completely translating this into, uh, his particular context. He can only understand it through, um, more or less Nantucket whaling.
0: Well, he can only understand it that way, or that's what he understands his audience will perceive. Most sure,
1: basically. sure. But, I mean, given the fact that he's got, like, a little boat, uh, crow's nest pulpit, and, uh, given his, given his general approach to life, um, I wouldn't be surprised if it's intended to also be his framework, not just sort of, not purely a missionary framework but just him thinking that this is the fundamental way to understand the world and also that would fit more generally with the book as like a microcosm of the universe in whaling.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense and this is very much like the whaler's sermon in every detail. <laughs> yes. Um,
1: uh, there, there's some I'd really like to get to as we go through, but obviously Yeah, we need absolutely. To wait on that.
0: Oh no, feel free to call out any bits that you want to talk about as we go. Um,
1: yeah, yeah I, I just there's no point in talking about them ahead of time.
0: <laughs> yeah, all right uh, so so the the service begins with the um, the, the chaplain Father Mapple. Uh, he urges everyone to gather together in the middle of the room by which you he mean he, uh, he says he says he urges everyone to gather midships. Um, and like directs them with uh, you know starboard and larboard, uh, and so that that's like the beginning of um, uh, not not that you already knew everything was whale themed from the last chapter, but that that is how everything sort of begins as it means to go on in this chapter. <laughs> um, so then he gives a silent prayer uh, and then leads the congregation in a hymn which is uh, based on a real hymn called Death and the Terrors of the Grave. Um, But the version that they sing here is uh, about being trapped inside of a whale rather than thinking about being inside the grave and being dead. Can I just Um, note
1: that it goes from uh, death and the terrors of the grave to the ribs and terror in the whale?
0: Yes. Uh, So, like, the, the terror of a whale is basically substituted for the terror of death here um
1: yep i I also really love some of the little turds in this, such as uh um uh with speed he flew to my relief as on a radiant dolphin born,
0: yes, um, and that's I guess maybe should I summarize the what the hymn says? I didn't actually write down a summary for that, but it might be worth yeah uh, uh let me just get to that um or do you want to you you have it up right now and i don't so uh
1: the um you mean the whale the uh b- version in the book the whale version
0: yeah yeah like it's yeah, just yeah no what it's um,
1: about. it starts with the the singer confined within the whale having been uh presumably devoured and uh seeing the opening maw of hell while all god's sunlit waves rolled by um and calls out to God, and uh, is released from the t- the the ribs and terror of the whale, while by God, who as on a radiant dolphin born, flies to their relief. And it's very much the the sort of standard. Uh, I'm in the grave. I'm looking down upon hell, and instead, I'm you know lifted up. Except it's a whale. And what I think is particularly interesting here is that the um, the implication is not because of putting it in a whale it wow that's such a weird sentence because of setting this story in a whale it um instantly makes the final stakes somewhat less transcendent because as we're about to get to with um the the general sermon you can if you come up out of the ocean you're not you know assumed like unlike rising from the grave you're not necessarily going somewhere immaterial you're Popping up like a cork and floating there. There's a there's a very, almost uh, overly materialized aspect to salvation from whale as opposed to salvation from death.
0: Yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying. Um, it it also I think to some extent is just uh, an adaptation of the the hymn to be specific to the story of Jonah, mm-hmm. um, which. Uh, you know, no points for guessing, that's what the sermon is on. Um, <laughs> I was
1: trying to avoid spoiling it. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, the, the most whale-themed book of the Bible is indeed the, um, the one that we're going to be reading from today. Um, uh, although, uh, funny story, I was referring to the Wikipedia article about the Book of Jonah when I was writing the summary, and the Wikipedia article consistently refers to it as a big fish. Um, I mean,
1: that is technically, uh, there's there's no distinction between the fish and the whale in biblical stuff, as we will be told at length by Ishmael later in this book.
0: Yes. <sighs> um, Taxonomy. I, I just think it's funny that Wikipedia has come down strongly on the big fish side. Well, of course, um,
1: Wikipedia are, um, are linguistic literalists.
0: Yeah, I suppose that shouldn't. <laughs> there was also... What was that line that I quoted to you from the article? It was something like, um, uh, like any good narrative, the Book of Jonah has characters, settings, plot, and themes, or something like that. Yes, yes,
1: character, setting,
0: plot, and themes. It's like, good for it. Yeah, like, I, I get that what they're trying to say is, you know, it's a narrative book of the Bible as opposed to a book of, like, poetry or prophecy or something, but it... You also didn't need to explain what a narrative is, Wikipedia. We could have just clicked on the link to the Wikipedia article about narrative.
1: I- true. I'm going to take the position that reminding people that good stories do in fact have a plot and themes is always appreciated. But I'm uh, TAing for English 100 this semester, so um, I have a bee in my bonnet about very basic writing advice.
0: Yeah. Um, All right. Well, speaking of themes... See, I think part of what's hilarious is the idea that, like, a book of the Bible might theoretically not have themes. Like, even yeah. if it didn't have themes when it was written, it has acquired them <laughs> since.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, no, that is a good, very good point.
0: Um, and speaking of stuff that's laden with themes, back to uh Wait, 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 I have, one more, I have one
1: more. I have one more. Oh, oh, sorry. No, 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 I'm just... Imagine, if you will, the Dark Souls fandom, but for the Bible... It's a I lineage. Mean, That's all it is. It's just about figuring out who was born to whom.
0: <laughs> Anyways,
1: uh, please continue. Okay. Um, we we can cut that one. I just
0: no. We don't have to cut that. Uh, I, I think uh, I think it makes sense. It's a good joke. Yeah. It's fine. Let's. Uh, okay. So. Um, so uh, the sermon is about the book of Jonah, um, and. Mapple basically uh addressing everyone as as his shipmates. uh Mapple pretty much retells the first two books of Jonah. Uh which I will summarize here. Um Jonah is commanded by God to preach to the Ninevites who have uh you know displeased God. Um and uh Jonah refuses and tries to run away from God's wrath. So he goes to Joppa and then flees on a ship to Tarshish. I don't know if I'm actually pronouncing these biblical cities correctly. Um, But uh, while he's on the ship, God sends a storm. And um, the the sailors on the ship realize that Jonah is fleeing divine punishment and reluctantly toss him overboard uh, where he's swallowed by a fish. Um, Which the Wikipedia summary I think described as him being miraculously saved by the fish, which I guess makes sense, did prevent him from drowning. Uh, But then he is stuck in there for three days, um, and he repents and prays to God, and uh, accepts his punishment, and then God frees him to go carry out his word. Um, And then the latter two books of Jonah are about him actually going to Nineveh, but that doesn't come up in this sermon.
1: I do feel like it's worth like you note that the um you know, the, the Wikipedia version, the, the gen the standard interpretation, uh the fish is the is the is salvatory. It's it's coming and saving him from drowning. But it is unsurprising that a whaleman like Mapple understands the fish as an enemy.
0: I will say I think the idea that like uh Jonah's like biggest torment was being trapped inside the whale is like a pretty typical way of interpreting this story. Sure, but um, it's, it's
1: still Like, there's a difference um, between—I mean, basically, I don't think that Mapple at any point presents the idea that the whale is, um, like, directed by God to do this. The Um, whale just—or am I just wrong there?
0: Yeah, I'm sorry you are, because the the, the, verse—the verse that he has them read, he says, "...clinch the last verse of the first chapter of Jonah." And God had prepared a great fish to swallow up Oh, uh,
1: okay, yeah, that's my, just my mistake.
0: Um, so he does, in fact, state the fact that God sent the fish from the get-go. Um, yeah. That's the verse they're talking about. Um, but, uh, but it, it's it's absolutely true that, like, the, um, you know, the character of the whale in this story is is absolutely terrifying, um i i I feel like you know i realize i I just wrote that summary of the story of jonah to summarize summarize the part of the sermon that is that story, but um I feel like I haven't given that good of a sense of of the actual like it's it's much more uh it's told with actually a lot of flair um uh you were talking about how um he's sort of interpreting everything into his own milieu. Uh, and part of that is about like making everything nautically themed, but it, part of that is also about like talking about uh, Jonah and the sailors that he encounters as though they are like contemporary.
1: Yeah, absolutely. People. There's the the section where he he's talking about how oh the sailors are going to be. Uh, thinking about what kind of fugitive would run and pay for a fare on this boat with no details and just suddenly jump. And he's very much framing it in terms of his own era. Um, literally, in their gamesome but still serious way, one sailor whispers to the other, Jack, he's robbed a widow. Or Joe, do you mark him? He's a bigamist. Or Harry Lad, I guess he's the adulterer that broke jail at Old Gomorrah. Or belike, one of the missing murderers from Sodom. So it's this interesting mix of very clearly you know, contemporary, uh, mannerisms and contemporary way of talking, even contemporary names with, uh, you know, these biblical allusions, which I think is interesting. There's also, um, not to get too far afield, but there's something I think is really fascinating is, um, Mapples, uh, trying to fit the locations of the story onto the Mediterranean and specific ports. For example, um, and he says, and I think this is a really great sign, uh, he skulks about the wharves of Joppa and seeks a ship that's bound for Tarshish. There lurks perhaps a hitherto unheeded meaning here. By all accounts, Tarshish could have been no other city than the modern Cadiz. That's the opinion of learned men. And that's fascinating because it's a specific way of approaching uh, you know biblical texts, and also very much a mid eighteen hundreds kind of thing that they're starting to there's starting to get this sense that you can specifically locate the cities of the Bible and the cities of the biblical era on modern cities or modern or think places that you can now geographically locate, like the discovery of Ur and Uruk as actual locations with the disca- with the excavation of Mesopotamia. But the Cadiz Tarshish one seems um I don't know
0: how solid that is. You know, I didn't actually look this up beforehand, but I feel like it's worth looking into. I think the connection that he draws between the biblical Joppa and the real place or the the modern place Jaffa are is like attested. I think yeah. I think that's like known. Um in the same way that many biblical locations are like known. Um, but I don't know anything about what biblical Tarshish is supposed to be.
1: So, I'm... uh, the Wikipedia page is extensive in trying to figure out where Tarshish is. Um.
0: Okay, I mean, that does imply that there's a real debate yes, in the modern era.
1: but the, um, evidence would appear to point to, um... A variety of uh, possible locations in Asia Minor in um, uh, Carthage might be a possibility Um, it's placed on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea by several biblical passages and it's described as a source of metals the Phoenicians of Tyre bought from their silver iron tin and lead in Ezekiel 27 12 this really has turned into exegesis hour and it appears to be an island based on a number of elements. Uh, so, while it's not possible to specifically determine where Tarshish would be, um, it looks as though the sort of Cadiz, um option is only spoke, is basically put forward by a Latin writer of the fourth century, and uh, a number of um, more or less uh Christian writers from Europe uh, associated with uh southern Spain in some fashion. Uh so yeah, okay. Spain appears to be a minority opinion, but it very much fits the eighteen hundreds. In fact, a number of eighteenth century 19th century commentators uh believe that it was Britain, apparently. Huh. Yeah, um there's like a whole list of them on Wikipedia, uh, both because Actually, that's fascinating because Britain was actually a source of tin that arrived in Mesopotamia, so it would have been a metal trading port that would ultimately be connected with the Phoenicians. Um, and silver, gold, tin, and lead are all mined in Cornwall. So I actually think that um, Tarshish being England might be a more defensible position than it being Cadiz. But that's just me.
0: Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's also always the possibility that, like, what it really means is a place that was as far away as Jonah could get to.
1: Well, that's Mapple's interpretation, certainly. Um, I'm just saying that
0: I think the specific thing I think is interesting
1: is that it's not just an attempt to map the ancient world onto the present to make it more comprehensible. It's also very much an era where... um, the understanding of the Bible and the understanding of these uh, references was starting to become historicized, was starting to become rooted in the idea that these are places we can identify on a map and build a geography of. Um, Again, because you've got a lot more early archaeology, you've got a lot of discoveries of biblical cities and their ruins. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I just think that's an interesting context for the book as a whole in terms of how... Uh, biblical references Function in it um, And also I just think that's cool I just think it's neat
0: It is neat, I agree um, It's it's worth noting By the way that uh, Mapple doesn't Actually quite tell the story in the order That I told it, um, because he leaves out One key detail, which is what God's command to Jonah was um, The command to go uh, Prophesy in Nineveh Um He basically explicitly says, uh, God gave a command to Jonah, never mind what that command was, I'll save it till later. And then he tells the entire story of Jonah running from God and, you know, everything else. Um, uh, Because he's trying to make this bifurcated moral point uh, about, like, having, on the one hand, a moral story for all sinners, for everyone in the congregation. Um, And that's kind of the overall point of the story of Jonah. Um, and then there's a specific message for him and for clergy, uh, which is why he withholds the fact that Jonah was ordered to preach until the end. Cause that, that sort of allows him to bring out that particular element.
1: Um, yeah, in that, in that sense, there's a number of very interesting things about tre- uh, t- preaching the truth to the face of falsehood and, um, also, uh, sorry, in that respect, um, talking a lot about, uh, you know, delight is to him a far, far upward and inward delight who against the proud gods and commodores of this earth ever stands forth his own inexorable self. And that's fascinating because Jonah was not commanded to be himself in any meaningful capacity. He was given a message to deliver. But Mapple still comes to this conclusion that it's about... um,
0: Sort like, of internal forthrightness.
1: Yes, holding to what
0: you know is right against what the world tells you.
1: Yes. And also, uh, even beyond that, holding to a certain... Mm, how do I say this? Uh, there's a certain intense individualism about this that comes out, which I think is just present throughout the book as one of its theological concerns. Uh, when we get to my favorite chapter, that will touch on it considerably. Um
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, in terms of, like, individualism, I think there is a certain individualism just to, you know, to, like, the salvatory message of Christianity in some ways, when it, it, given that it is about, like, individual souls, right? Sure, sure. Um, Moral, moral responsibility doesn't adhere to a community exactly, it adheres to like, uh, individual and, like, the choices that they make, at least in most interpretations. Especially I think there are... in
1: an extremely Protestant interpretation.
0: Right, especially in, like, yeah, this Protestant 19th century New England, uh, you know, version of it. it it's, it's highly individualized. Um, uh, and I uh, there's also the fact that um, the story of Jonah is one about someone who becomes completely alone. Mm-hmm. uh, uh like, even just from the beginning of when he, like, flees from his home, he becomes someone out of context and with, like, a deep secret that no one knows about. Um, and then the climax of the story is, like, his total isolation inside the whale.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, but you did skip ahead a little bit um, oh, to sorry. the second point. No, it's okay. I just want to make sure we, we clarify the fact that, like, Mapple has, has two points that he makes. And the first one is, is basically, you know, what, what I think most people would draw out as like the message of the book of Jonah, which is to obey the word of God and, uh, you know, repent your sins. Um, and so, you know, to uh, avoid the things that Jonah does that are bad, but to copy the things he does that are good, um, like, which is fairly straightforward. And then the second point, which you were just getting to, um, with that whole delight is to him paragraph, uh, is all about the responsibility of the clergyman, um, whom he consistently refers to as, as the pilot, uh, to, to preach the truth and, and to essentially guide people spiritually, um, even though it may be hard, uh, and uh, the, the the ultimate conclusion of it is to to focus. Even though he, he the whole uh, sermon more or less has been about like suffering and privation and and uh, you know all these terrible things that happened to Jonah and um, how like uh, and about sin, um, but the the conclusion is all about how um, the about the basically the joy of heaven. Um, well, it's.
1: Not really the joy of heaven exactly, it's the joy of, um, obedience or of something else, because it's not, in fact, he has this specific line at the end that was very curious to me, which is, um... An eternal delight and deliciousness will be his who, coming to lay him down, can say with his final breath, O Father, chiefly known to me by thy rod, mortal or immortal, here I die. I have striven to be thine more than to be this world's or mine own, yet this is nothing. I leave eternity to thee, for what is man that he should live out the lifetime of his God? And that's weird.
0: Well, I mean, okay, the way that I read that was that there it, it's essentially an extremely uh th- there th- there's a, a a sense um that part of what being a a good christian means is not presuming on your own salvation like no matter what um even like never presuming that you you yourself are good but always believing that you're a sinner um and so like what he's saying is someone who with their final breath says you know i don't know what's going to happen to me i commend you i commend myself into your hands god Um, that that is someone who's going to heaven. Because, I mean, he says eternal delight and deliciousness will be his. I don't think Mm -hmm. it really makes sense to read that as referring to anything other than heaven.
1: Sure, but I think the, if not in Maples, on Maples' part, I think that the irony on Melville's part is very much present. Because I think that there is a, I think there are meant to be tensions in this sermon. It doesn't hold together precisely.
0: Mm, that does make sense. Um, I, I don't I, I think Maple
1: think... is meant to be a particularly great preacher, basically. I think he's meant to have his own hmm. weird internal... Uh, I mean, the whole fact that he completely rewrites uh, jo- all of the events of Jonah entirely into this wailing uh, structure, often in very odd ways, um, I don't think I... he's meant to be purely compelling.
0: I guess that's fair. I, I found it to be, like, a pretty... I don't know, I, I felt like the, um, you know, the actual, like, narrative was conveyed very compellingly mm-hmm. and-, and dramatically. Um, and I, th- like, all of the sort of descriptions of um, how Maple acts as he's speaking sound very, like, dramatic. And, I mean, maybe you could say overwrought, but um, to me, it- I thought the impression that we were supposed to get was that he was undergoing, like, serious spiritual... I mean, experience,
1: I, I think he is. But I also think that this is a book that is very ironic about that at the best of times. I think that in the same way that Ishmael's religious experiences and are constantly pulling him in various different directions. I, I guess what I mean to say is I don't think Maple is any has his head on like straight any more than Ishmael does.
0: Mm, I guess that's fair. I, okay, here's what I will say. I think this sermon is extremely compelling to Ishmael.
1: I think that's true, but I also think that, as we will see in a couple chapters, almost any religious thing is extremely compelling to Ishmael.
0: Okay, maybe that's fair. Like, Um.
1: we'll get—in fact, I think that—I think it's really good that we're reading these together for that reason. Um, And we'll we'll get to that in a second, I'm sorry.
0: No, it's all good. Uh, yeah, um— I think, also, we can we can stand to disagree on, on how yeah, effective yeah. this sermon actually is. It's probably worth noting, like, for a little bit of context, that I think I generally find, like, Christian narratives about sin and redemption more worthwhile than you do. Well, I can find them worthwhile. I just think that they're...
1: I really like boats. And I also think there's some weird things about how Mapple uses uh, the, the milieu that he's speaking to and through. Um, and I think that there's, I mean, if I, if I had to say the thing I think is really going on with Maple as opposed to saying, I think there's a tension here, which is such, uh, you know, academic, uh, speak to avoid <laughs> stating it. I think that his personal sense of himself as a prophet is immense. Like just, he is absolutely thinking that he's Jonah here. Like he has this, um, he has this line, uh, you know, um, while some one of you reads me that other more awful lesson which Jonah teaches to me as a pilot of the living God, how being an anointed pilot prophet or speaker of true things and bidden by the Lord to sound those unwelcome truths in the ears of a wicked Nineveh, etc. He's very specifically drawing the line from calling himself the pilot of these souls and of this this ship of this chapel to Jonah and to every uh, past prophet. And frankly, I think it's it is overwrought. it is framing himself as the um as the sole pilot of the ship and you know all of their souls within it. it's very much and also this is because you know, eventually who's charting the course on the boat that we will eventually 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 be on it's ahab who is the pilot of that it is um actually it's uh The one whose name I should be remembering because he's my favorite, and I just completely forgot. Um, Bulkington. Bulkington's the pilot. And and setting that course, Ahab charting that course, brings everyone along with him in a way that is very much... mm, mm, How would I put this? Mapple does not have as much actual command over the fates and souls of the people in his chapel... As Ahab will over the people on his boat.
0: Yeah, that's fair. Um I, I think uh the, the the fact that he directly identifies himself with Jonah is, I think, like just as much castigating himself for his own like moral failures as it is uh, elevating his own sense of power although i think it's both you're totally right but it may even if he is being castigated
1: for his failures he's presenting himself as a prophet like not just a not just a priest but a prophet and i think the, the the weird triangle of priest prophet and pilot is really interesting
0: yeah that's that's fair um I think, like, mostly the, the the point that I wanted to make in, in, in Mapple's defense is just that, like, this is a dominant uh, method of, of how people are supposed to read the Bible at this time and, you know, into yeah. the current day. You're supposed to, I say quote-unquote supposed to, the many Christian churches teach people to, uh, like, identify biblical figures with their own lives and compare oh. their own sins to them, and... Uh, There is a sense of aggrandizement in that and like certainly in the way that he separates himself out from the flock and like views his own sort of mission as higher. But I don't know that it's something that is inconsistent with the way that everyone around him would view the role that he has. Like he is separated out from them. He's the one preaching. Sure, Um, but
1: he also has all this pageantry of pulling up the ladder after him into the uh, into his little, you know, boat crow's nest uh, speaking spot, um, his pulpit he has this, um, I mean, basically, I think that the figure of the captain or the pilot, the person who on the boat directs the boat and therefore directs everyone around him, is, I mean, it's a position of of immense authority. Whereas while he might, you know, truly wish to sway people, uh, it is also the case that Queequeg left before the sermon actually got started.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. People um, can walk talking... off the boat. When we're talking about how compelling this sermon is or isn't, we, well, you know, it, that comes up in the very next chapter. But yeah, at, at least one person who came here because he thought it would be interesting left halfway through. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I also think um, one of the things that like you may not be quite acknowledging as much is that like he knows he doesn't have control over his congregation, um, which I think is a big part of the sense of um. The sense of like the mission of being a, a chaplain as being difficult right mm-hmm. that um you're sent to preach things to people that they don't want to hear um now that's definitely still a sort of self aggrandizing like ah, i'm speaking the awful truths that people don't want to hear sort of thing it absolutely is that but it's not like he actually thinks he has oh the other thing that uh occurred to me was that um He doesn't include the results of Jonah's preaching, um, which actually are that the Ninevites, like, repent and go around in sackcloth and ashes suffering Mm -hmm. for their sins, Um, which is interesting. Uh, I, You know, I don't think a lot of biblical prophets get results in that way. (laughs) Like, usually when you're going to a city and telling them that they're all iniquitous... Um you don't actually get the entire city going, "Oh, well, fuck. <laughs> Let's fix that." Um
1: Yeah, fair enough.
0: Um which I which I just think is interesting because it almost raises the question of whether that would like undermine Maple's uh sort of image at the end of someone who is who has like fought against the the world his entire life and is dying. Um if you have a a part of the story where Jonah actually sees success. Um, (laughs) it it might undermine that a little bit. Yeah, no,
1: I hadn't thought of that. (sighs) So do we want to go on to the next chapter?
0: Yeah, I think I've, I've covered everything in this sermon. Uh, so the next chapter is chapter 10, a bosom friend. Um, and, uh, In this chapter, Ishmael goes back to the Spatter Inn, where he finds Queequeg. As we said, he left the chapel early. Um, When he runs into Queequeg, Queequeg is busy whittling on his wooden idol, Um, but he stops once Ishmael arrives and instead starts leafing through a huge book, uh, counting, seeming to count its pages um, in units of 50 or something like that, um, that Ishmael is watching him and and sort of speculating that that's what he's doing, but he doesn't really seem to understand what's happening. Um and
1: go on. Oh no, I was just going to say that um it's very much Ishmael's assuming that uh Queequeg is not getting anything really from these pages that, you know, he's illiterate, which may in fact be the case, and that whatever he's doing here, it's it's almost framed as though Queequeg is like imitating the reading of books without understanding what a book is
0: yeah it does come across that way a little bit there's also the fact that ishmael theorizes that the reason he's counting them or going through them in like chunks of 50 uh is that he can't count higher than that um which is uh i don't know yeah i mean sorry well it's it's a little bizarre because he he like deeply insults quickling's intelligence in that way Um, But then, like, a minute later, while he's staring at him, reading this book, all Ishmael is thinking about is how, like, noble Queequeg's countenance is.
1: Phrenologically, Um, even.
0: Yeah, he compares the shape of his skull to George Washington's. Yep. Um,
1: Uh, I think that the—it's interesting that, uh, specifically— Ishmael has the phrase, at every 50th page, as I fancied, stopping a moment, looking vacantly around him and giving utterance to a long-drawn, gurgling whistle of astonishment, which doesn't, um, because Queet not in any way counting out loud, Ishmael has no evidence or even has, and even has not himself counted the pages to say it's 50. So what he's describing is someone, you know, sort of flipping idly through a book Occasionally looking up from it and putting this whole narrative on it.
0: Yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, the the an overall like perspective throughout this section where Ishmael is just watching Queequeg is that he is um, like praising him as much as he can, almost. Like, it, every sentence is like, oh, he he, he was, a, you know, a pagan and a cannibal, but he was so noble and handsome. And, like, it, um, you know, clearly uh, the basic, like, tension of that is uh, really weighing on Ishmael.
1: Yeah, no, um, I think that a key part of this is that this is, like, this is after Ishmael's already sort of decided that he's friends with Queequeg. Um, and he clearly really values a lot about Queequeg, but is kind of, I think, maybe having a hard time actually seeing him. Because uh, we know that, you know, Ishmael probably was a school teacher at one point. We know he's from a relatively uh, upper-class family, or at least a relatively prestigious family. Um, and... Having access to his thoughts, he's, you know, an incredibly kind of, like, uh, contemplative, but also very fanciful and easily distracted individual. Mm -hmm. And so I think that part of what's going on here is that he has really no idea what to like. He's having a hard time being in the same, in, like, the presence of someone that he really wants to like and wants to like him because he does really admire Queequeg basically in all things that Queequeg has done so far uh including finding a lot of Queequeg's oddness and you know uh heathenishness or whatever he calls it repeatedly uh charming but at the same time he's having a really hard time understanding any of it
0: yeah um and definitely a lot of what's happening in this chapter as Ishmael observes Queequeg is like that he's confused by what he's seeing um
1: I think he has the, you know, he's repeated, and to be clear, he's repeatedly calling Queequeg a savage, but also, like, a noble and, uh, you know, someone who has a Socratic wisdom, and it's it's this constant, and I think, intentional vacillation between, uh, oh no, the other, and the other.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um, yeah, uh, oh. it should go without saying, I guess, that, like... I don't know, this is all, like, a very, I don't know, um, we haven't, yeah, yeah, um, I don't know, just, like, I'm not even super comfortable with, like, white people using the word savage in the modern era, you know? Yeah. Um, and I feel weird about us just, like, saying it on our podcast.
1: Yeah, Um, I mean, I was was trying to make it clear that this is a thing that Ishmael keeps calling Queequequeque.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, you can't escape that in this book.
1: Um. And also the fact, and part of this is also that Queequeg comes to sort of stand in for a certain image of the capital P, Pagan. Mm -hmm. Like, Queequeg is definitionally non-Christian. But he's also really personally noble, generous, strong, impressive, but he's not quote-unquote civilized he's there was that whole discussion of him being half civilized last time um uh there and so you've got this really complicated discourse that ishmael is sort of chewing on that's uh balancing between i think basically the idea of on the one hand i theoretically really value being christian being well educated being quote-unquote civilized but also the people I know who I actually like the most and who are the, like, kindest and most generous are not those things.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, he, that's true. he
1: literally says, having, you know, been staring at Queequeg awkwardly for a while, um, I'll try a pagan friend, thought I, since Christian kindness has proved but hollow courtesy.
0: Yeah, you you. Uh, I I wanted to read that aloud. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's a good line. Um,
1: we 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 it, can delete my version and do yours. No,
0: you why not. would we do that? Because
1: <laughs> you wanted to read it.
0: Yeah, but you also wanted to read it, obviously. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, that I, I I feel like it's it's worth noting the kind of like beat by beat as he how he gets there. Um, because Ishmael has been staring at Kwekweg, um, and then Ishmael notes that. Kuikuiq is basically not paying attention to him, um, like ignoring the staring, uh, which on the one hand seems kind of weird, but on the other hand, is also very admirable in a, in the way that it makes him seem incredibly self assured and like self contained. Um, and it's it's pretty much after reflecting on that, so quite literally, it's because Kuikuiq is ignoring him uh, that. Ishmael then decides, you know what? He's very impressive. Uh, uh, let's be friends.
1: Do, do you want to read this? the section that begins with, I began to be sensible of strange feelings?
0: Uh, I didn't write that one down, so I don't... Uh, I'm just... So, yeah, as, as you read, he basically decides uh, time to officially befriend Queequeg. Um, and uh, that involves sort of inching towards him on the bench and uh, starting to try to bring up small talk, um, which Queequeg ignores at first, uh, but then eventually uh, uh, he warms up to him and uh, they, they establish that they're probably going to sleep in the same bed again tonight, um, which Queequeg seems kind of pleased with. And uh, they have a social smoke, um, they they share uh, smoke from Queequeg's tomahawk slash pipe, um, and then when it's over, uh, Queequeg, Queequeg holds Ishmael close and declares that they're married.
1: Yep, that happens.
0: Yeah, uh, it's it's very like you know um, <laughs> we already talked a lot about how like. Clearly homosexual this is. Yeah, but, it, yeah and it, it's, it's also
1: really charming. Like, it, Ishmael is kind of a nervous wreck about, like, again, we've had three pages in my large version of uh, Ishmael staring at Queequeg and thinking, I think he's really cool, but I have weird, complicated thoughts about this. And it is really charming that Queequeg's response to this is basically to let him... Fred and be nice to him and then eventually they hug it's it's nice
0: it is yeah they have a very sweet and like instant powerfully close relationship um which uh you know um actually maybe more dramatic than the fact that Queequeg declares that they're married is how um uh Ishmael like interprets that for the reader which is meaning in his country's phrase that we were bosom friends he would gladly die for me if need should be um <sighs> which which like is on the one hand it is this sort of funny like slightly no homo moment um but on the other hand he's saying he would die for him after knowing him for a day so it's not really
1: yeah yeah it's um i mean also there's there's things that Ishmael says around this like um uh, you know, just looking at Queequeg, I began to be sensible of strange feelings. I felt a melting in me. No more my splintered heart and maddened hand were turned against the wolfish world. This soothing savage had redeemed it.
0: Yeah, there's almost a sense that, like, Queequeg is curing Ishmael's depression in this moment.
1: Or something. It's Queequeg is... Again, he's he's just sort of sitting there, and he's like whittling a thing, and he's he's you know p- paging through a book, and Ishmael is just overflowing with this sense that like being able to be in a place with Queequeg is making him better. Yes, it's 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 very charming, and it's also I think speaks a lot to um to again the various tempests within Ishmael at any given moment.
0: Yes. And speaking of Tempest within Ishmael, um, I the next little like moment between the two of them is very cool. Uh, so now that they're married, Kuquiig gives Ishmael his embalmed head and half of all of his money, which is a lot, um, thirty silver dollars. Uh, and uh, w- which he really like insists Ishmael take. Um, and then Kuquiig gets set up to start doing the religious devotions that he does to his idol. Um, and he clearly wants Ishmael to join in, um, and Ishmael kind of thinks himself through it and, uh, reasons his way into, uh, this actually being the true Christian thing to do.
1: It's, it's so good. It's such a good paragraph.
0: Yeah. Do you, do you want to read it or, um, no, You well, f- feel free. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to, I, I don't know that I necessarily want to read the whole thing because it's, it's very long, but, um, yeah, the, the. The um. The the reasoning that he goes through is, well, uh, you should do, I should do unto others as uh, I would have them do unto me, and what I would like Queequeg to do unto me is to join me in my form of worship, which is his you know,
1: quote, my particular Presbyterian form of worship.
0: Yes, <laughs> sorry, I just found um, that very funny. So, uh, therefore, if if he's going to follow the golden rule, he has to unite with Queequeg since he wants Queequeg to unite with him. Um, so he, uh, you know, helps him with like making a little fire and burning a little bit of biscuit before it and making various devotions. Um, and, uh, then they all, uh, then they go to bed. Um, Ishmael clearly very, like, pleased with it.
1: Yeah. No. Um. He he. In fact, ends the chapter with saying, "Thus, then, in our hearts' honeymoon lay I and Queequeg, a cozy, loving pair."
0: Yes. Yes. It's, it's, it's very. It's, it's all
1: very charming. But I really I like the the way, the way the language functions in the section where he's. Um, uh, you know, going from beginning the cent- beginning the um paragraph with I was a good Christian, born and braised born and bred, born and braised, jeez, born and bred in the bosom of the infallible Presbyterian Church, and then later going helped prop up the innocent little idol, offered him burnt brisket with Queequeg. It's, it's just really charming how 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 far uh, Ishmael's reasoning can go so quickly.
0: Yes, um, he, he is clearly strongly motivated.
1: That is true, but I, I also think that's one of the reasons why I think that we have to look at the uh, the fact that this is the immediate chapter after the Serbid mm. uh, puts a lot of irony into Father Mapple.
0: Yeah, that's a fair point. Um...
1: Because you go directly from, you need to go and speak truth about God to the, um, you know, to the heathens who, uh, you know, and if you don't, you'll be in a whale and you'll need to seek repentance. And, you know, the most important thing is to, you know, carry on that torch. And then about five minutes, well, okay, not five minutes actually in the story, but in terms of reading, about five minutes later, uh, Ishmael is just who has been you know who has presented this as this like earth-shaking storm of emotion and religious fervor is convincing himself that actually the nice the best thing to do here for religious reasons is to uh worship with queequeg
0: yeah that's that's that is all fair um uh i think that'll about do it for this chapter Uh, I, uh, I just want to make sure we have enough time to give Queequeg's biography the time it deserves.
1: Oh, yes, that's very fair.
0: Um, so I want to move us along a little bit. Uh, so the next chapter, um, chapter 11, Nightgown, is, this is basically a short transitional chapter where, um, uh, the two of them are just, uh, laying in bed, um, as, as, as it's described, chatting and napping at short intervals. Um, which sounds very unpleasant to me, actually. Um, but I guess if you're with someone you're really enjoying spending time with, it might be fun. Um, and eventually they stop feeling sleepy, uh, so they sit up with their knees tucked up to their noses, um, and Ishmael has this little bit that he goes on about how actually real coziness is when some small part of you is cold, like the top of your head, so you can only actually be cozy when you don't have a fire in the room. Um, he has
1: very strong opinions on this.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and they're very strong opinions that are clearly directed towards him being like, yes, well, the fact that I can't afford to, like, keep my house lit is not a bad thing at all. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. He does, however, describe it very prettily.
0: Yes. Um and then, eventually, Queequeg suggests that they light the lamp and uh, have another smoke, um, which uh, Ishmael notes that he has made a complete 180 on, because <laughs> the previous night, uh, he really didn't want Queequeg smoking in bed for safety reasons. Um, but now that they're married, uh, it just seems like a really pleasant and cozy idea. So they, uh, they share the pipe, and uh, while they're doing that, Queequeg starts to talk about his homeland and his life. Yeah. Anything? I
1: think... I mean, other than uh, the fact that he describes being uh, tucked up in bed with your your nose out and, but, and the air cold, but the blanket's very warm, as then there you lie like the one warm spark in the heart of an arctic crystal. I just think that's very charming.
0: That is a nice sentence, yeah.
1: yeah. In fact, this whole very short chapter is just incredibly charming. Like it doesn't it have is. it doesn't have any of the fervors or tensions of the the preceding chapters. It doesn't have this elaborate discourse on Christianity and paganism and uh, you know Ishmael's weird categories that he fits the world to. It it's really domestic and it's very charming.
0: Yes. So uh, finally, chapter twelve is called biographical, and this is. Uh, the story of Queequeg's life so far, retold through Ishmael's words. Um, uh, he is Queequeg is the son of a king from uh, a fictional island called Kokovoko, um, and he longed to see the world in his youth. So he tried to join a whaling ship uh, that came to the island, but they rejected him uh, because they already had a full com- crew. Uh, so he followed the ship in a canoe, threw himself on board grabbed a ring bolt, and refused to let go even when they threatened to cut his hands off, uh, which impressed the captain enough to let Queequeg stay on the ship um, as a sailor. Which Ishmael seems to think that uh, being on the ship as a, only a sailor rather than, you know, a, a honored guest was kind of below Queequeg's station. Um,
1: yeah, no, he's he's... Which is really funny given that he has this elaborate, earlier on in the book, that elaborate thing about how he never goes on board as just a, as a, you know, as a guest, as a, um, as, um, a passenger. He only goes as crew because you get far more out of it and you get paid and it's all better. But for Queequeg, he's, um, he's of the opinion that it is below Queequeg Station and Queequeg should be shuttled around, um, you know, uh, as an honored guest.
0: Yeah, although I think he, he indicates it as, uh, he sees it as, like, um, you know, impressive in Queequeg that he's he's willing to uh, stoop to doing this kind of work. He, he, uh, uh, he, he compares him to Peter the Great, um, who worked incognito in shipyards uh, in order to, as part of his, like, he, he wanted... I'm just getting this from my footnote, um, that he had a dream of building a navy, so he started out by working in shipyards. I think this is probably all kind of mythological, uh, it, it, I, I don't know.
1: It, it's apocryphal, but I get the sense. My, my understanding of the history is that, uh, uh, Peter the Great did do plenty of modernizing and was personally interested in this, so I don't know if he actually did, you know, go and work incognito in western shipyards, but I'm certain he at least visited
0: them. Mm-hmm uh but uh as far as uh Ishmael is concerned it's very much like an you know allusion to this idea of um nobility or like royalty who are not uh not above um getting their hands dirty basically
1: and, and specifically um, in a in a vaguely westernizing style because he he uh claims that the reason that uh Queequeg sought to um go out and see, quote, something more of Christendom than a specimen whaler or two included this desire to sort of um, acquire Western, uh, you know, in this case, Christian, but really what he means is European, uh, like technical knowledge for the betterment of his society.
0: Yeah, the the way that it's it's like described is the arts whereby to make his people still happier than they were, and more than that, still better than they were. So very much like this... 19th century idea of, like, kind of uh, technology and also, like, social and moral progress, yeah. both being things you could go out and acquire. Yep,
1: yeah, but it's really complicated because uh, Queequeg's immediate response to actually meeting a bunch of Christians is, uh, no thanks.
0: Yeah, so uh, he, he basically, his trip convinces him that uh, whalemen are... Or, like, his trip among whalemen convinces him that Christians are just as miserable and wicked as his people, uh, or rather, even more so. um, Infinitely more so, in fact, is what it says in the the book. Uh, um, So, uh, this basically leads him to conclude, after his ship and after stopping at a couple of ports and seeing a few more uh, types of sailors, uh, Kwee Kwee basically decides... Um, you know, forget about this whole modernizing my people quest. Uh, we already had everything, uh, right from the first place. Yep,
1: yeah, he, the uh, thought he, it's a wicked world in all meridians. I'll die a pagan.
0: Which, I mean, fair enough.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I greatly respect Queequeg.
0: Um.
1: Uh, I, I also just really love that this is sort of... In a lot of ways, this biography, much like the um, the sort of religious tensions invert the sermon immediately after, this biography inverts a lot of what Ishmael was thinking about when he was looking at Queequeg.
0: Mm, that's true. Uh, about like, sort of, uh, I mean, I, I'm not sure I see how it inverts it. Like, t- I see like it confirms it. Like, the fact that he is literally uh, nobility when, like... Oh,
1: oh, certainly. No, but I'm talking about um, this line here where, you know, um, by hints, I asked him whether he did not propose going back and having a coronation, since he might now consider his father dead and gone, he being very old and feeble at the last accounts. He answered no, not yet, and added that he was fearful Christianity, or rather Christians, had unfitted him for ascending the pure and undefiled throne of 30 pagan kings before him. It's yeah,
0: I it... hadn't gotten to that part yet, but yes, I was. that, that was the next bit, so...
1: Yeah, sorry, it's... That, that's what I meant by the inversion.
0: Yeah, no, totally. There's this idea that, uh, basically, um... Queequeg has been, like, corrupted by the Christian world.
1: Yeah, it's, um... it's this... I mean, again, there's, it's not just a sort of one-sided, oh, you know, you have the civilizing influence and you also have these pagan virtues that need to be sort of like harnessed and directed. It's, it's a lot more complicated because, you know, maybe the civilized virtues aren't so valuable. Maybe there's something else going on there. You know, it, it is, it is still a binary of pagan and Christian rather than, you know, something a little bit more culturally realistic where different people have different qualities (laughs) but it is really clear that at least I think it's very clear that this is sort of setting up a dynamic that's going to continue through the whole book, um, which gets even weirder when you get to various uh, sort of implicit Christian heresies that also exist in the book.
0: Yeah. Um, And it's, it's at this point uh, when, when they've both, when, when uh, you know, Ishmael has asked Queequeg if he doesn't want to go home, and Queequeg has explained that he doesn't want to, uh, that they kind of both realize, oh, uh, we're both planning to go whaling uh, as soon as possible. Um, uh, so at this point, they agree uh, to, to go uh, to Nantucket together. Um, and specifically, Queequeg... He at once resolved to accompany me to that island, ship aboard the same vessel, get into the same watch, the same boat, the same mess with me, in short, to share my every hap. Um, And uh, uh, Ishmael is delighted by all this, um, partly obviously because he likes Queequeg and wants to be close to him, but also partly because Queequeg is a much more experienced whaler than him, uh, and it can't possibly be a bad thing to have someone who has way more experience with this on his side.
1: Yep. yep. Um, I uh, I also feel like it um, to some extent puts the lie to uh, Ishmael's claim that oh no this just means we're very close friends he died for me but we're just very close friends uh, when it turns out it does actually mean something much more similar to marriage in that. Queequeg's immediate response to Ishmael going, I'm thinking of going on a, on a whaling boat is, we have to be on the same boat so that we can share everything in common because that's, that's what we've agreed to do.
0: Yeah, it's it it does seem pretty clear that at least from Queequeg's perspective, um, he and Ishmael are now like an economic unit.
1: Yes. Yeah, that is that is a great way of putting it. They're a household.
0: Yes. Um...
1: They're a census unit. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> They are! I, I guess so. <laughs> um, Queequeg is is one dependent.
0: Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <sighs> so, with that, they, uh, they go to bed uh, and actually fall asleep this time. Um, and that is the end of the chapter.
1: Yep. And again, they're very charmingly, like, lying together in the bed and... ...in that way that Ishmael has just identified as extremely cozy.
0: Yes. It's very good. <sighs> yeah.
1: A few things that I'd, I'd love to sort of just point out... ...that are just wonderful turns of phrase or, like, interesting things... Uh, ...from Queequeg's biography uh, section, from Biographical... Um, ...is, uh, first of all, but by and by, he said, he would return... ...meaning back to his, uh, his homeland uh, to be king... Um, as soon as he felt himself baptized again, uh, which is again, this, this precise inversion where literally what he means is as soon as he feels sufficiently sort of free of Christians. Um,
0: I do sort of wonder when Queequeg thinks that, thinks that is going to happen. Um, because like, he's not exactly avoiding Christendom. He is maintaining his own, uh, habits, like, among Christians, and you could say that he is sort of, like, purifying himself that way, um, but uh, essentially I, I doubt whether Queequeg is ever actually really going to go home
1: Yes, that is a reasonable doubt Um, sorry I mean, okay,
0: yes, like, I, uh, I think from what you're saying that he probably dies later in the book, I don't actually know for sure Um
1: I did not uh, say that I,
0: ha- I have, I have not gotten myself spoiled on the ending ending of this book which is kind of hilarious. So, sorry. I just,
1: you know it's, it's only uh you know it's it's only been 150 years so it's, it's really <laughs> still you know you still need to put the spoiler tags on thank you uh
0: yeah I I mean this is uh I, I'm I'm being more reasonable about this than my friend who uh, was doing is doing a romance of the three kingdoms podcast and had to finish reading the entire epic uh, because uh, they really wanted to find out how it would end and, and didn't want to like accidentally get spoiled by Spoilers you know, history China. I mean
1: <laughs> Yes, but Spoilers. Wailing is no longer this in <laughs> Sorry.
0: Okay, yes.
1: <laughs> oh, um uh- Major spoilers, there's going to be a very large whale and it's very angry. Well, okay, (laughs) Okay. that's actually an extremely complicated theological question.
0: Does the whale have anger?
1: There's entire speeches about that that we're going to get to that are really good. I know. I'm looking forward to that part. Yep. Speaking of that, that layer of symbolism, uh, there's also the fantastic foreshadowing line, uh, they had made a harpooner of him, and that barbed iron was in lieu of a scepter now. Speaking of Queequeg's, you know, claim to the throne and his, his current position, um, Spoilers: Harpoons as like scepters or staves or sim- symbolic objects of power get really big around a third of the way through this book, and then they don't stop.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I had gotten to some of that in, in my previous reading. Um, I, I think I might know the specific scene you're talking about, but let's let's not jump too far ahead of ourselves. Spoilers: um.
1: Gnosticism. <laughs>
0: You can't just keep saying spoilers and then saying things that are incredibly vague.
1: <laughs> I am, I can, and I will. I think I screwed up the order of that. Can I do a second take or are you going to make me keep that one?
0: I'm going to make you keep that one. Damn. <sighs> um,
1: but I'm, I'm not going to stop.
0: All right, well, I guess I can't stop you. From... Spoilers, fatalism. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay, yeah.
1: Yeah, I I feel like we we covered a lot of ground. I I do really... I just want to say I think you've made a really good choice in having all four of these chapters together because they really do have this sort of back-and-forth structure where a philosophical concern gets raised and then inverted or contrasted in the next chapter um, in a way that sort of... Well, except for for, um, the nightgown, which is just charming. But... The other three ones, which the nightgown is sort of stuck in the middle of, absolutely have this sort of weaving back and forth of concerns about Christendom and paganism, you know, as as understood by Ishmael, and uh, friendship and marriage and savages and civilization, again as understood by Ishmael and sort of the framework he sees the world through.
0: Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm glad I'm glad we picked this chunk of chapters as well. Well, um. Huh. I think that's about it for me. Uh, you cool. can uh, you can find me on Twitter if you want to at uh, at char asna blunt like the Gundam character, except at the end it's a it's a blunt because four twenty. <sighs>
1: Meanwhile, uh, I too plan to die a pagan, so I think that's a good place to sign off.
0: <laughs> All right.